conference uh, last night with uh, single saints in uh, in heat uh, and had just a, a wonderful experience with with them um, and so it's always nice to kind of uh, you kind of get that energy that comes from people coming all over the, the single cat uh, today the um, tree of life now I wanted to kind of set it in this in this context because there's probably few visions and things that have been examined more than this vision, and yet I always find more. There is depth to this uh, beyond depth. But I want to look at it through a particular uh, window. There's a lot of things, well, ways we could look at it. Here's how I'd like to approach this uh, today, if I could. Um, and that is that uh, I want to look at this today as a temple text. There's a lot of um, BYU scholars that are looking freshly at certain passages of Scripture and they're finding in it either uh, people that were had the temple in mind while they were receiving the revelation or writing it, or as a result of the vision you see the temple more clearly. This is definitely one. It's one of the most powerful temple texts that we have in all of Scripture. So hopefully by today, maybe this helps you understand the temple a little bit more and adds some meaning to the temple. When it reopens, when, President? November 17th. November 17th. All right. So you're going to have a chance to prepare. So if, if we start with the whole idea that um, we kind of begin with the idea that the Lord creates... Uh, a world, and the world comes out of darkness, and then it's cast in light. And when you finally see it in light, you see a, a, a world. And in Hebrew, that's olam. It, it is a world. Okay, and and in this place, uh, in the middle of all this world, you get uh, eastward in Eden. There is a sacred spot, uh, a garden that is planted. Now, within this sacred spot, you get the sacredest of all spots, and that is a tree of life. Or in Proverbs, it's called a tree of wisdom. Um, and so, what you get is this three-tiered setting, where you get a general world, where everybody is. You get a sacred place, which is the Garden of Eden. And then you get the most sacred spot, where you meet God... And it is in this wisdom place. It is next to the tree of life. It's a three-tier kind of situation. Okay. Now, why is that important? Well, it's, it becomes very important when, when uh, through Moses uh, and, and all through the scriptures, but you see it more in when we start creating temples. Uh, you're going to get this. This. Uh, oh wait. A before, I, before I go there, let me just remind us. So what happens then in, in Eve's search for to be wiser, to gain more knowledge, it requires that she's going to not just be eating of the fruit of the tree of life. She's also now going to partake of the knowledge of good and evil, which comes at a cost. To gain the wisdom now that you need to continue to progress, you can't stay in this place. So she and, she and Adam make this decision to then move outside of this and they're going to then fall. And, and the fall is not just spiritual, it's also physical. 
Remember, uh, the Garden of Eden has uh, four rivers pouring out of it. Well, how, how can a river flow downward unless the Garden of Eden is lifted up? It's a, it's a mountain. It's a, it's a higher place. So when they fall, they fall. And they're going to literally come down physically. They're going to come down spiritually. And, and this is the fortunate fall. This is the search to gain more wisdom. Okay? Now, to make sure, because an atonement hasn't taken place, you don't want the, them to then come back and partake of the tree of life, because what would happen if they did? They would live forever in their sins, right? So how do you make sure that they don't, they or their children or somebody, don't inadvertently go back and eat, go back into the place where they're not, not supposed to be? How do you make sure that they don't go? What are you going to, how do you protect that? Angels, absolutely. You're going to place angels as sentinels to block and guard that way. Not in a mean sort of way, but making sure that they're not, they don't take a step that they're not ready for yet. Okay, so you're going to put angels to guard the way into the holy place. Does that, does that make sense so far? Okay. Alright, so now when they started setting up temples, now the idea of a temple, you kind of get the same three-tiered kind of setting. So the first one is the porch, or ulam, or olam, which is translated, the world. There's a world place where people could be out in that porch area of the world. Okay? Now, in the middle you're going to have the holy place. And inside the holy place is where... Uh, <coughs> You get a, a representation of the, the tree of life the, it, because you get the uh, menorah. You also, right in front of that, and we, we've talked about this before, is the altar of incense. That is the altar inside. And we've talked about before how that, that altar is a place of prayer. And it's right in front of the veil where they're going to take the burnt offerings from the... Outside there in the world, these these the sacrifice that's going on, they're going to take hot coals, they're going to walk into the holy place, they're going to put it in the altar of incense, they're going to mix it with incense, and the and the smell of the the incense is going to rise up, and this is the prayers ascending to God. Just before they cross into the Holy of Holies. Okay, does that make sense? Now in the Temple of Solomon, so you've got this massive veil that guards the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And what was on the, the veil itself? Leading into the Holy of Holies. Anybody know? Was it children? Yes. Angels. There are angels guarding that way before you step back into the presence of God. Okay? So, and then inside there is where you get that place where God dwells. And the idea is to then go through these steps of starting from the world, progress into the holy, of, the holy place where these sacrifices take place, and ultimately be able to cross into the holy place where God dwells, past the angels who stand as sentinels, right? According to Brigham Young. 
Now, that's kind of, so so the idea of a temple was that they were re, whoops, recreating the Garden of Eden. The idea was that we fell, and then the idea of having a temple is a reconciliation back into the presence of God to do those things that are necessary to get us back in there. Does that, does that make sense? Kind of a kind of a cool concept of how that how that works. Um, and and under the law of Moses, who got to cross into the holy of holies? The Only the high priest. What was revealed to Joseph Smith? Who gets to cross in into the holy holiest of places? Everyone that's worthy. Suddenly, everybody becomes high priests, and everybody gets this ability to to make this step forward past the angels who stand as sentinels. Wait a minute, do we have angels that we got to get past to get into the temple? Okay, you got you got three sets, right? Number one is your bishop. You got to get past that angel who's going to assess whether you're worthy enough. The Egyptian form of this was the god Mot, and and what she would do for those that would go through this, the Egyptian endowment is that when someone would come into the nether worlds, she would take their heart and they she would weigh it against a feather and she would weigh it and if your heart was as light as a feather you could proceed forward that's why on a lot of the sarcophagus uh, of egyptians you'll you'll get the like on, on king tut there's these feathers and and that is the god mot and she is the first uh angel that you have to get past as you walk through the netherworld isn't that great it is. It's just this, how's your heart? Not necessarily what you've done, not what you've earned, but who are you? What have you become? I look at it this way. I know who I was in the past, who my heart was in the past. Yes. God knows what my heart was in the past. Sure. I know who I am today, where my heart stands today, where my Lord God and me stand today. And I want to make sure that I protect my future of where my heart stands in the future. And the moment, yeah. It is funny, last night with the, uh, with the singles, I, I was talking about the importance that we are a kingdom of do-gooders. We're supposed to be do-gooding, always. But the problem is we don't always do good because we, we remember our past and we think we're not qualified to do the do-gooding that is needed from us in the future. But not qualified is a very important part. Yeah, that he qualifies us. So our hearts have to be this feather-like kind of thing. Okay, so we have to get past three sets of angels. First of all, we've got to get, get past the bishop. He's the first angel. Then we have to get past the state, state president. president, second line of angel. Okay, and then there's a third angel, and that is the guy at the recommend desk. Yeah. He's the third angel. Can you verify that you have been qualified by ecclesiastical leaders who have measured your heart and they know that you're worthy, that then says, yep, and then, then you are admitted into the holy place. Okay? So we get this reconciliation back into the presence of God. The purpose of temples is to get us back into Eden. It is to reverse the fall. Yeah? And then to get into the celestial room, We do. There, again, there's still this, have we, have we learned, have we covenanted, and can we demonstrate knowledge of that? Okay? It is, it is that. And 
and we're going to do that in the presence of prayer and, and preparation uh, to be able to make that final step back into the presence of God. Okay? You just get this beautiful, again, it is, it is, a, it is a symbolic, um, it is a step-by-step ascent, rise, uh, to Truman Madsen put it well, but it's also a step-by-step ascent, consent, agreement, covenant to step, to agree ourselves back into the presence of God. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Okay, so when we look at, in the scriptures, we're going to get these temple texts that give us elements of this journey of reconciliation back into the presence of God to, to reverse the effects of the fall for us. Yeah. Do you suppose the concept of my It's exact, thank you for bringing that out. What happens is if you actually look at uh, Exodus, Exodus says everybody saw God at Sinai. Deuteronomy, and the Deuteronomists changed that to say only the high priest really saw, only Moses did. They didn't see the face of God. That was, so, so for the Deuteronomists, it was keep the law and that will save you. But before that, the, what we call the wisdom religion, but prior to the changes with the Deuteronomist, there was a belief that everybody, because indeed, and Book of Mormon says that Moses was intent on everybody seeing the face of God. So what they got with the Temple of Solomon was a place where only the high priest had the possibility of seeing God, not everybody was going to get to, and they, they got hung up on that. The, the idea of wisdom, if you look at, that actually, if you look in uh, Proverbs 3, uh, she's going to talk about the, the, uh, the wisdom tree in there, actually is female, and Proverbs 8, you're going to get a chance to, to hear this, this terminology, okay? All right, so now we take, so, so if you've got this in mind, now we can get into 1 Nephi 8. Because now, now with this as a backdrop, now you take a look at what is going on here with, uh, with Lehi. And, and we're going to get this fascinating thing. And, and probably this may take us a lot of the rest of the semester to get through this. Because we're going to get this wonderful vision that for Lehi was very much, even though there were others involved, Lehi's vision was very much about him and his family and, and how that would work. Nephi, when he's going to get the same vision, uh, the Spirit is going to give him the vision of the tree of life, but it's going to get, be against the backdrop of the light of the life of Christ and his uh, sacrifice and resurrection and what would happen to the people in the Americas and Columbus and everything that's going to go is all part of this vision. So we're, so we're going to get two parts. The first part today is really Lehi seeing more of his family. Uh, now, in his dream, he starts in a dark and dreary wilderness. Okay? And it, comes to, and it came to pass that I saw a man and he was dressed in a white robe and he came and stood before me. So really, kind of, he starts in darkness, and then the first thing he gets is this man in this white robe. Now, 
I find it fascinating because we speculate. Who's the man in the white robe? Could be the Lord, right? Could be the Spirit. Do we know? But here's what we here's what we do know. Okay. It came to pass that I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. Now. Think about what we have here. We have this. It starts with a darkness, and then here comes the man in the white robe. And now Lehi's experience is about to happen. Then we're going to get Nephi's trying to get answers. And he's going to be given the vision and everything that goes with that. And he's going to have all these great experiences. And then right, go right to the end of Nephi's experience. What is the very last thing Nephi sees in his Entire dream. Let me give you a hint. First Nephi 14. And I looked and beheld a man, and he was dressed in a white robe. Oh, really? And the angel said to me, Behold, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Who is the man in the white robe? For Nephi. Who then is going to who would then be entrusted to take that vision all the way to the end of days, but Nephi is not allowed to write it. John the Revelator. So we start with a man in a white robe, and Lehi's vision starts. We have Nephi's vision, and we end with a man in a white robe. We have this bookend, men in white robe. Okay? So one of the... We're not going to know, and it's probably not important for our salvation... But one of the possibilities for who this might have been for Lehi would be who? John the Revelator, who may even in his pre-existent state have had a responsibility over these, over the, we call because we call him John the Revelator. He, there's a vision, and he may have had some keys to this revelation is a, is a possibility. That make sense? Don't know. But I just think it's kind of fascinating. In either case, we're going to get somebody that's in charge of walking us through this vision. Except this man's kind of cruel, right? Because he's going to say, he's dressed before me in a white robe, and he stood before me, and he said, and he spake and, and bade me follow him. And, it, and as I followed him, I made it to the tree of life, and life was so much better because I followed the man in the white robe. Now, he said, okay, I'm going to... The man in the white robe says, gosh, you're in a dark place. Let Follow me, and I will get you to... A darker place. A darker place. <laughs> yeah. And now, now I'm going from a dark place to a waste. Why would he do that? What is the, what is the purpose... Of taking, see, we get caught up in the in the tree and the rod and everything. We don't always remember this first part here. So he's going to be led by the man in the white robe from a dark place to a darker place. So what do we learn? Uh, don't follow the man in the white robe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Say that again. Sometimes when we go through trials. 
it gets worse before it gets better. Okay? When we, for, uh, those of you who have participated in a Trek experience, and, and two of the hardest places that we have with in, in the, the handcart Trek experiences, one was for the Martin Handcart Company, it was Martin's Cove, where 17 died that night of exposure inside the cove, right? For the, the Willie Handcart Company, it was Rocky Ridge. It was coming up the face of Rocky Ridge, and there were a number that died that night. Do we realize that at both Rocky Ridge and Martin Cove, they had already been rescued in both places? The rescue had already occurred. Daniel Jones had already found them. They had found them anyway. I don't know if you say the rescue. Yeah, they had found them. They would parked their stuff at, at the ranch Martin, and then gone to, into the Martin's Cove area to try and get some rest, waiting for the rescuers to come when the deaths occurred. Sometimes after when we are found, that doesn't mean that all of our troubles go away. Sometimes the trials actually become worse after... I mean, for how many people, when they find the church, is it all sweetness and light and angel singing? And, and yet for them, now maybe the persecutions and the struggles actually begin. So I love this analogy of saying sometimes the, the process of moving forward after we have been rescued and found by men in white robe doesn't necessarily mean that things are now hunky-dory. They can get worse. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not comforting, but at least it's not, you don't get surprised when things get harder. Okay? Alright. Came to pass, I followed him, I beheld that I was in a dark and dreary ways. Uh, and after I traveled for the space of many hours, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. So even after being rescued... <clears throat> And, and now he's struggling. So, so you get this sense of somebody who is kind of going through the darkness. And now we begin to reach out. And, and that reaching out in terms of wanting to be rescued and wanting to get past it. And what, what does it turn out as the tender mercy that, that he receives? The fruit is located where? On the tree. It's located where? Kind of the back in that Eden thing. So here comes, so here comes where the, the temple analogy begins now really to kick in. So if we're going to have this, here's our three tier. So really he's coming out of the wilderness, and now he's going to he's going to step up to this place around the tree. And now he gets to go partake of the tree. And it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field uh, as if it had been a world. So now he sees the field. He sees the, he, he's on the path. He's come out of darkness. And now he begins his path back, back here. And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. So in response to his cries for tender mercy, he's actually then 
Here's the answer. Here's the solution. It is to come partake of this fruit. How great's the how great's the fruit? Well, I did go forth and partake, and it was most sweet above all that I tasted. Uh, above all the fruit, it was white to exceed all the whiteness I had ever seen. Um, by the way, it is fascinating that if you look in in uh, a lot of ancient texts, this idea of a tree with white fruit is all over the place. Uh, it, it is an image that comes up in uh, in a lot of uh, ancient cultures. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceeding great joy. Wherefore, I began to be desirous, what? Yeah. When, whenever we have something that's this good, the next thing we want to do is share it. Yeah. Uh, which is fascinating because this is what joy is. Joy means that I want to be able to share it with others. Now, the opposite of joy would probably be like pleasure, right? If I have something really good, am I necessarily wanting to share it? No, I want to keep it for me. Because it, it may go away. So I'm going to hold on to my stuff. When we have something joyful, there's no end. We can share it. There's, there's a multitude of this that's always available. Okay. So let's look at this. So flip over here to... Now, now his vision goes from being in the tree and eating the fruit. Now he's going to start to look outward. Part of what happens when we, when we go through the temple experience, we are filled with, uh, at first, a little confusion, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. But when we begin to sense the joy that exists there, now we begin to look outward. And, we look, and we're after our kindred dead, right? And we're after our family. And we're after and the possibility of being sealed to our family and all that goes with that. Okay, It's an outward view. Uh, but now when he does that, he casts his eyes round about that he might discover his family. Now while he does, what does he actually see? River of water. Now, Nephi's going to tell us about the river of water. We'll talk more about this next week. But the river of water is, what do we know about it? Filthy. Filthy water. Okay? Because we're about we're also going to talk about an apostate temple that that sits alongside the, the real temple. There's an apostate one that uh, Hugh Nibley calls the temple gone dark. And it's going to run alongside it. But he's going to see this river. Uh, Nephi will say, well, what I said, uh, the real temple will become a river of life. This river coming from this area, because we, we haven't yet seen the great and spacious building, this river is a river of filth, and it brings death to those who drown trying to reach the building. What do we know about the temple in Jerusalem in the last days? How do we know? What's one of, the, one of, the, one of its features? Yes. There, there'll be a Ezekiel sees this river of water flowing out from underneath the temple. Okay, 
And will there actually be a river flowing underneath the temple? It wouldn't surprise me if, if this actually happens, kind of a physical manifestation. But if you just take, is there a river of water running underneath the Dallas temple? In what way? There is a spring, physically. Tell me about the spiritual river that runs from underneath the temple. I think that's also symbolic. We get this physical manifestation of that. Ezekiel, it says it gives life yes, to everything. to everything. So what flows from out of this temple, it, 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 it fills with life whatever it touches. It's, it's our covenant, isn't it? There we go. The river that actually flows outward there, in, 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 some, in one level, it's us, right? It is people that go into the holy place. They receive covenants. They are changed. They take on responsibilities. And then what happens as we step out from the temple? We become a river of righteousness. A river of disciples. And whatever we touch should live. We should be a, we should be a river of do-gooders. As we flow out and we touch the lives of others. That, that's the river really that, that's why I say it wouldn't surprise me at all if symbolically there is a river one day flowing out off of, off of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That wouldn't surprise me at all that it heals the Dead Sea. But if that never happens, it turns out that it was probably symbolic anyway because the most important river that flows out of temples is us. We're the river. A covenant of, it, it's, a, it's a river of covenant people. And their righteousness that bring life. Isn't that awesome? Okay. So, in this case, is there a river of there's a river of filth flowing out? I don't want to go too far yet. We'll, we'll get into the great spacious in, in a second. Okay. All right. Now, he's going to cast his eyes round about. He's covered his family. Sees the river. Uh, and I beheld from whence the river came. I look up to the head thereof a little way. And at the head of, I beheld, and I saw your, your mother Sariah and Sam and Nephi. And this is an important phrase. And they stood as if they knew not whither they should go. Why not? He can see them. Why don't they know where to go? Huh? They're, in, they're still in the darkness. He can see them, they just can't see him. Now, how frustrating is that sometimes? River. When you're out there and you have this great knowledge and understanding and you want to flow out of the temple or out of general conference or something and you're just filled with life-givingness. And, you're, and you look around and there's family that you love or friends that you love and you're trying to share goodness with them and what do you get in return? Yeah. They're still in darkness. They're in blindness. It's extremely frustrating. Very frustrating. Very frustrating to try and... I'm trying to tell you something and they... Uh, I remember trying to uh, uh, explain this once to a a client who said, you're Mormon, and I said, yes. And, and she says, tell me what goes on in the temples. And I said, um, 
th th this stuff is out there, but let me just give you an idea. And I tried to explain to her the idea of baptism for the dead. That those that wouldn't have a chance to be baptized are, are by proxy, we're going to be able to get them because she was Catholic. I say, you believe that, you know, if somebody is Catholic and they're not, and, and they're not, they don't get last rites, or they were never baptized as a child, then where do they go? Purgatory. Yeah, ooh. Just because the priest didn't happen to be there, or because your parents didn't believe, or you weren't near a Catholic church. And what happens to that? Well, and I said, that's kind of not fair, is it? No, not really. I said, that's what we do. In, in our temples, we actually perform by proxy baptisms for those that have passed on. That's baptism for the dead. And her response was, ugh, that just sounds weird. <laughs> She's in the dark. It's like, I just don't, I don't get the concept. I actually just learned about it the other day, and I think it's really very cool. It's a, it's a very awesome concept, it's, isn't it? It's an extremely interesting concept, and I think it's awesome because in that way, the people that are actually have passed are blessed. They are. And in fact, John Quincy Adams, when he came to Nauvoo, he was always not that impressed with how Joseph Smith looked, and he kind of thought the accommodations in Nauvoo were, were kind of shoddy. And he wasn't, and he thought it, the whole place was kind of rough. But he said the concept of baptisms for the dead was one of the most ennobling things he'd ever heard in his life. And I, I think that, that's true. What a beautiful uh, experience. So, so for Sariah, Sam, and Nephi, they stood as if they knew not whither they should go. Uh, and I, it came to pass that I beckoned unto them. And, and I love this. There are times when we speak with a still small voice. But in this case, he's, I did say it to them with a loud voice. <laughs> yeah. You know, wake them up. Uh, this is one of the, I can only think of two times when we speak with a loud voice in the scriptures. Or in our religious experience. This is one of them. You know what the other one is? Yes, the Hosanna. Shout. And, and with all due respect to the brethren, I think sometimes our Hosanna shouts are a little on the wicky side. It feels strange to do that. Yeah. yeah but, and, but initially, and especially in the Kirtland Temple, they shook the rafters on that thing. It was, we, uh, we'll sing and we'll shout. And they shouted. You know, and you had a thousand people crammed in that little space that when it came time to the Hosanna shout, their their voices were going to reach up to heaven and they rocked that place. And I've always thought on our temple dedications, it's one of those times that I just like, I wish, I realize it wouldn't be very reverent. And so it's probably why it is that needs to be done. But I just would love to have a shout, you know, and just tell God how grateful we are for this thing. Grateful for the tender mercies that have been plant a temple in our midst. Let him know. Let the people outside the building here. I think the people back then were in a different place than we are today. We, we, so, we're so blessed. Sometimes we tend to take those blessings for granted and they have been, they had suffered and had been driven to humility and yeah. worked and toiled so long and finally they broke through. Finally they got this they temple after all that sacrifice. They were pretty dang excited. 
That's why if you've ever been to the Kirtland Temple and you see kind of the, the small benches and everything, and it seats about 500, and they had over 1,000. I mean, they were just stacked on stacked on stacked inside that thing, and then to have them call out with a loud voice their gratitude to God must have been an amazing, amazing experience. Anyway, he's going to call out with a loud voice that they should come and partake of the fruit. And it came to pass that they came and they did partake. And, and Laman and Lamuel, we know, uh, not so much. Now, so the one that we, uh, the, that uh, we, he now looks out and now he's going to see for the first time one of the features that he didn't see initially. There is this great and spacious field. And one of the features there that's leading them through this is the rod of iron. Yeah. Uh, let me... By the way, I like that a lot. Isn't that cool? It just kind of look, looking up uh, Google Images, and I thought that's kind of an amazing picture. Isn't that cool? Okay. Uh, Margaret Barker, uh, who is a, a Catholic uh, researcher and theologian who has actually been done most of the ground, heavy groundbreaking work on the Deuteronomus, um, was invited by the church to speak at the uh, uh, Worlds of, of Joseph conference at the Library of Congress about 10 years ago. They brought in a lot of non-Mormon scholars to speak about Joseph Smith and his world. <coughs> and here's, here's a remark that she made um, at the Worlds of Joseph conference. Consider as well the mysterious rod of iron in the Book of Mormon vision. In the Bible, the rod of iron is mentioned four times as the rod of the Messiah. Each mention in the King James Version says the Messiah uses the rod to break the nations or to rule them. So let me stop for a second. In, in, in a Bible context, what is a rod? It's like a staff, right? It's a stick. Or it, it, it's, a, it's a rod. And it, is, and it could be a shepherd's staff. We get this idea of this rod. Who had rods? Shepherds and? Kings and rulers and? Moses had a rod. But uh, isn't it also a scripture? I mean, it's yeah, there's a stick. That's the stick. But we're also, gonna, but there is a, a place where it becomes a word. Okay. But just think about a rod for a second. By the way, we, we talked last time about um, Nephi and and the brothers before they're going to decide who gets to go face Laban first. The first thing they're going to do is. Draw lots. How does that rot, the lots usually work? <coughs> They're usually a group of sticks that are thrown in the air and they're going to come down, the idea being that God will direct how they land, but in essence they were a rod and one of the, the so you got this group of sticks. Sometimes we talk about it just, we think it's just like pulling out the short stick. For them it was really taking a group of rods, throwing it in the air, and the rod comes down and it points at the person to whom God is meaning for you to carry out whatever it is that you're trying to do. It is a, 
And by the way, and, and yeah, probably next week, we're going to talk about another rod. Only instead of calling it a rod, we call it a spindle. And where would the spindle point? On the, on the what? Liahona. On the Liahona. And where is it going to point? In the direction they should go. So we have this tradition of rods and spindles that, that lead and guide. And one of the rods in the Old Testament is one they simply had to look at it and follow it because they'd been bitten by flying, fiery serpents. And they had to go to the rod, make their way to the rod, and get there. And those who would look would live, and those who didn't look would drowned in the river of filthiness on the way to the great spacious filth. No, that's not true. <laughs> but it's all here, okay? The idea of rods and following rods, and what Margaret Barker is talking about is the fact her research as, an, as a non-Mormon Catholic researcher, here it is, here's the kind of things that she's finding, okay? Now, when she talks about... <coughs> being able to find rods, she finds those that the, the rod of the word of God breaks the nation. The ancient Greek translation in the Septuagint, she says, is significantly different. It understood the Hebrew word in Psalms 2.9 to mean shepherd. That the idea of a rod is to shepherd. It, okay, And it reads, he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. So we go back to the idea of the shepherd's crook that's going to lead and guide the sheep where? To safety, right? To, to get them into the fold. Now, so often, again, I go back, you know, teenagers in our church and those of us that are still kind of teenagers at heart, we struggle sometimes against the rods of the commandments, right? And we see that as a, I, don't, I want to go wherever I want to go. And we're being told, we're going to shepherd you. We want you to follow this rod, follow this commandment, because it's going to lead you to great joy. And, and, and it's going to lead you to this place that is in the temple. Well, sometimes, again, the, the process of following the rod to the temple means that it's a series of things that you can't do. You're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to fool around. You're not allowed... And you have to go to church for hours on Sundays. And, you know, and you have to serve in callings that are going to keep you busy. And it's, it's can'ts, 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 and have to, have to, have to's. And that just sounds like... Doesn't that sound like, to a lot of our saints, it's kind of an iron rod... You know, I, 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 I so well remember the days as a missionary. And in the old days, it was, it was uh, the sixth discussion. And you get them ready, and then, okay, we ready for this, elder? Okay, we're going to go do the sixth discussion. All right, if they can, if they can jump this hurdle, then we got to. We can get them baptized. Got your flannel board ready? We're ready. Okay, here comes the sixth discussion. Okay, um... Let's talk about word of wisdom. Can't, 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 can't. Let's talk about uh, chastity. Not allowed. Don't even think about it. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about Sabbath day. Don't get, no, 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 no. Let's talk about tithing. Whoa, here we go. You know, and it's just like, 
here comes the iron rod. And, it, and, and usually by, you know, that they might, they might suffer through the first wave, then here comes the second wave, here comes the third wave, and by the time we're getting to the, and by the way, now for all of this that you don't get to do, and it's going to cost you 10%. Oh, I'm not sure we can do this. You know, it just seemed like here, you know, but this was the, we had to get them past all of the thou shalt nots. And it just seemed like it was hard. And, it, and it, for so many, it seems like an iron rod. We do hard things. But, but I love the idea that he says he will shepherd them. So if you see it, it's an iron rod, but it, if it's a shepherd's crook, it's to gently lead them in the direction that they should go. Well, Margaret Barker is going to go on to say, the Greek text of the book of Revelation actually uses the word shepherd. The holy child, Revelation 12, the holy child who was taken up into heaven was to shepherd the nations with an iron rod. And then she makes this, and I think this is pretty fascinating, again, coming from a non-Mormon scholar. She says, Lehi's vision has the rod guiding people to the great tree. Probably the it's the older and probably the original understanding of the word. Her understanding is is that Lehi's understanding is probably more accurate than what we have in the Bible as translated today. How about that? And if you get that sense of the idea, uh, well, and we're going to see the difference about different ways that we that we utilize the rod to get us where we need to go. Okay? Does that make sense? Comments on that? Yeah? Do you think that this understanding about what she has in the first paragraph about the rod is the break of nations and the movement yeah. of the Messiah is coming to the world? Is that what the misconception from the Jewish people came that their Messiah would be, be an iron kind of... Yeah, it could be. Could be that it was going to that, that strength and power would be military and yeah. It also comes, by the way, from the idea that uh, kind of, you go back to Hezekiah and he was <coughs> Hezekiah city because they were living the law of Moses that an angel would come and strike down an army and that it would be a military solution to that. Okay. All right. Oh, one other thing, and then we'll actually look at this. Uh, and I also realize this. This is uh, fascinating. That that one of the great little scriptures things that we have in the in the book of Psalm is Psalm twenty three, the twenty third Psalm. I want you to put in your mind for a second the the Lehi's vision of the tree of life and the rod. Okay, and then see if David wasn't seeing either something same or at least having the same sentiment. The Lord is my shepherd, would have a crook. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, as if it had been a world. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the mists of darkness, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table 
before me in the presence of the great and spacious building. In the presence of mine enemies, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the temple of the Lord forever. Yeah. I was uh, just mentioning to Shelley when you're talking about can't, 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 and have to, have to, have to. I have an inactive son, and then I have four active children, three of sons. And when you look at their lives and where they are, even financially, the son that is inactive and has made different choices is not in a better place. No. No, and and that that happens. You just watch you watch him struggle uh, in that regard. Okay, let's do this. Uh, I'm, uh, let's see, I want to do. So let's go back here. So I'm going to behold the rod of iron, and it stands along the bank of the river, and it led uh, to the tree. Now, he's also going to see a straight and narrow path which came along by the rod of iron, even to the tree by which it stood. And it also led to the head of the fountain into the great and spacious building. So again, you've got the river, you've got the path. Uh, Now, I saw numerous concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward, uh, that they might obtain the path. So they're in the world, they're pressing through, they're trying to get to to the path. Not even, they're not even talking about the rod yet. They're just trying to get to the path. Okay? The path unto which the tree by where I stood. Uh, and it came to pass that they came forth and did commence in the path which led to the tree. Now, at that moment, if you're following a path and you can see the tree, do you need a rod? No. No. You got the path. In fact, you can even kind of wander away from the path a little bit if you want to because you can still see the tree and you can still see the path. You can camp alongside the road. You can go visit uh, historical monuments along the way. You know where the freeway is. You can get back onto the on-ramp. You see the path. It's there. You don't need the rod. When are you going to need the rod? When the midst of darkness show up. The path, the rod is there to get us through the mists of darkness. You get that one? Okay. Now, I I believe there's a lot of things we can say. We know that we just sang about the rod of iron. The rod is the word of God. And Nephi is going to be told that it's the word of God. Can I give you one other interpretation against the backdrop of what we've been talking about? Would it make sense also that possibly the, this was the Word of God as contained where? Maybe in the Law of Moses. That perhaps they were following the Law of Moses to a certain extent on the way to the tree. Now, so, so let me take a step back here. This is going to sound like a college level essay question, but it really isn't. Tell me the difference between the way that the law of Moses was lived in the Old Testament versus the way the law of Moses was lived in the Book of Mormon. Because in the Book of Mormon, they're living the law of Moses. In the Old Testament, they're living the law of Moses. 
In the New Testament, they're living the law of Moses. What did the people in the Book of Mormon have knowledge of that apparently often those in the Old Testament didn't have knowledge of? Jesus Christ, the destination. So when they lived the law of Moses in the Book of Mormon, where are they looking? To the tree. They're on the path. They're holding on to the rod during dark times. They're, they're obeying the law of Moses, but it's always with a goal towards the ultimate end, which was the Messiah, towards the Savior. In the Old Testament, what was... What was the, the purpose of the law? Salvation. You know, the, for the Deuteronomists, as they changed that religion, it was cling on to that thing. There's no necessarily tree up here. It's right here. Hang on. So now, now you're going to see it kind of play out here. Okay? An interesting aspect. I want to ask you about that. So when we're, when we're talking about that, and they know the path. They yeah. see the path. Right. Right? But they don't know about Jesus Christ yet. Right? Correct? Right. Right. But they have the faith that he's going to be there. Is that there's not, there's There's something up there. They're not right. quite they sure. They know that, they're, that, that their faith is so strong, though, that they know that there's something. Something. Going. Okay. Hang on to that. Because okay. that's where we're going to go. Here. All right. Okay. Because they're going to see numerous concourses of people pressing that they might come out of this world, this wilderness, this waste, this darkness. Here's a path. We're going to follow the path. Now, where are we going? We're not exactly sure. Sometimes you get there's a somebody up there calling with a with a voice. Okay, I saw numerous concourses of people. They're pressing forward, and I love that pressing. I don't know if you ever been, you know, like you go to a a sports event or you go something or a theater or something there's like lots of people and, uh, and you're pressing to kind of get in okay you want to get a seat okay they're pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led to the tree it came to pass that they did come forth and commence in the path and now comes the midst of darkness uh, with exceeding great mist of darkness insomuch that those had commenced in the path, there's one group, and we could take time, and I'm not going to do it today. This lines up with the parable of the seeds, by the way, of the four seeds in, in the Savior's parable. I'm not going to take time today, but if you want to do that, it's a fascinating thing to do. Look at the four seeds and the four people, groups of people in, in here. Anyway, all right. They come forth, they commence in the path that led to the tree. There comes the mist, exceeding great mist. And those who commence in the path, there's a group that just wanders off and get lost. Why? How come they got lost? They were on the path, and then what happened? They didn't hold on to the rod. Here's the rod. Grab onto the rod. How many people do we know out there are just like, just grab on, just go to church? Well, no. Ah, stupid. They're not even going to start. Okay? So those guys are lost. Now, he beheld others pressing forward, and they came forth, and they caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. They're now being shepherded. And they press forward through the midst of darkness, and this particular group does what? Clean. 
They're going to hold on tight. They're clinging to the rod of iron. Even until they did come and partake of the fruit. But this particular group of clingers does what? Give the next line. After they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. Wow. Found the path, found the rod, got successfully through the mist of darkness, get to the tree, eat the fruit. Then now they're going to be ashamed, these clingers, because now they're going to see and, and for Lehi, he's looking at this and he's watching them be ashamed. And you just see his vision going, well, I saw him here. Oh, those guys got lost. Well, these guys clung to the rod of iron. They make it. They ate the fruit. Wait a minute. They're ashamed. What are they looking at? And it's almost like they look and he looks. You just kind of see it. Wow. I didn't even see that. Which I just wonder, you know, I just think that's marvelous. He's so surrounded by joy. He doesn't even notice the building. Isn't that awesome? I'm just so surrounded. And where's my family? And these guys are eating everything. There's a building? Whoa, there's a building. Well, these guys notice the building, right? After they had tasted the fruit, they were ashamed because uh, those that were scoffing at them. And they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Now, I Nephi don't speak all the words of my father. There's more here we don't have. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. It did. But I also think if if we take the idea that we've been talking about, that potentially they just weren't like wild rebellious guys. They were actually Deuteronomists that believed that salvation came by the law of Moses, that they really didn't need the tree because they had the law. And that and Jerusalem was righteous because they had the law. They kept the law. And so we really don't need to participate in any of this because we keep the law. We're righteous. So there's a tendency sometimes... I remember, you know, as missionaries, I knocked on a lot of doors with people that said, we really don't need you. What we got is sufficient. And that was especially true of, of the, the people of Judah. We really don't need you. We keep the law. We are saved. So the, I, think, I think that's part of that. That's why I wonder if one of the interpretations of the law of Moses would have been for a number of people, the word of God they expected was the one that they believed how it came from Sinai. They're going to follow that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Because the people that really get it, who are going to really understand the importance of all of this? And where are the righteous? According to that, are they at the tree? No. For Naaman and Lemuel, where are they? They're in the building. How can you tell? They've got the great building. And 
Uh, and not only that, uh, let's see. Uh, he's going to see this great and spacious building and stood high as if it were in the air, high above the earth. Uh, two things about the building. One, Hugh Nibley did some, some beautiful writings on this, and part of what he talks about is that there was always a difference between those in the cities and, and the, the Bedouins that would travel in the wilderness. And the people, the, those that lived in the buildings, um, they, would, they would actually live in the top part of the building. And he actually shows some pictures. I was actually going to post a couple of these pictures, but it's exactly fairly cool. There are no windows on the first few floors. From a safety factor, you don't put any windows in the bottom part. You put the windows on the top part, up a, a few floors. And so at night, for instance, the light's going to come from the top part, and what are you going to see underneath at the bottom? Nothing. So it looks like the buildings just kind of float in the air. But you know what? They're safe. They're secure. Because nobody can get in because there's they don't have a lot of doors and windows on the bottom couple of stories. You can't attack them. It's like having a wall. And there was always this sense of the people in the city, who would they look down on? Well, the Bedouins, the travelers, who dwelt where? In a tent. The people in the tent over here are looking up at the people in the city and thinking they are arrogant. They are prideful in that we're going to create our thing out here. But, but one of the signals here is that in, their manner of dress was exceeding fine. Who in Jerusalem had fine twine linen? Priests. The priests did. So in a sense, this is one of those buildings, but as Hugh Nibley describes it, this is really the temple. And these are the priests that are mocking and, and stoning the prophets. And that's why he calls it a temple gone dark. It's a temple that has lost its light. It's Shinha. The, the, the light of God it doesn't exist here at the moment. It's a temple gone dark. And you get... Now, from the... If you, if you think about in all the writings that we have between the Savior and the Sanhedrin, do you have a sense? Can you, is it easy to put the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those in the Sanhedrin and even... Is it easy to see them mocking? Pointing fingers? Here's dirty Galileans. Where the, especially the Sadducees at that time. They had massive Roman homes and everything in the old city of Jerusalem. They, they had beautiful places. And they would look down on the people of the desert. You get this mocking. Now, does that ever happen today? No. From the great and spacious building, is there a sense of mocking who? The uneducated. The uneducated. I, I, I was reading, I just read one just this morning. Uh, a, a post by a guy who says, I believe that anybody... Uh, he, he's a firm evolutionist. I believe that anybody who teaches their kids creationism is abuse. It's, abu it's abusive to teach kids uh, creationism of the Bible. 
The only true religion, the only smart religion is science and evolution. Why would we want to trust our kids to knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who are going to teach that God created the world and that there was a flood? Really? Come on. It's that, it's that set. I'm always amazed at the arrogance that comes from that. It's not just a different view. It is the view and everything other than that is nuts. It's arrogant. And, it, and you get this fine twine. And, and, that, and you get that sense. And here's what. So, so you get these people that have clung to this. That's why in the time of, in the, time of the Savior, without going too far in here, you get the Greek... Uh, nobility, the, the, everything that was about Greece and, and education and philosophy and knowledge and understanding and you landed on Jewish society and you had one group that were high-born king men, rich people uh, who, who tried to figure out how to incorporate all this Greek stuff into their lifestyle and they were the Sadducees because they were rich born. And in fact, without getting too gross here, so that they could actually wrestle in Greek faith, they actually tried to figure out how to reverse uh, circumcision because it would kind of be obvious that you're Jewish. How do we, how do we slide into Greek society nicely and, and keep our nice homes and everything? Okay? And we're not, so we're not going to believe in a resurrection and we're not going to believe in miracles and we're going to cling tightly to the law of Moses. Now, another side, here comes Greek society. This is the people raiding the city. Out in the ruralness, you've got these people that are going, this Greek stuff is an abomination. It's horrible. To make sure that our people don't listen to any of that, uh, we're going to take the law of Moses and we're going to put additional laws around it to make sure, because we're not sure about the Sabbath, so let's add extra laws to all of that. To make sure that we are not mixed up in any of this Greek stuff. And these were the Pharisees. The Pharisees would build the extra stuff. The Pharisees were in the, in the ruralness, and they're building all this stuff here. The Sadducees are the rich people in the city. Fine twine linen. Uh, and they're looking down at anybody that would be... In other words, the, Pharise the Sadducees looked down on the Pharisees and everybody hated the Sadducees. They were the one percenters everybody wanted. Does that make sense? How did we get there? I don't know. All right. Um, okay, so, so you've got so two groups of people that get to the tree. First you've got the clingers and they're hanging on tightly. And then, look at this one. And to be short in writing, Nephi's going to do a little edit here. By the way, we've we'd probably gotten the whole thing in the book of Lehi that was contained somewhere in the 116 pages that were lost. Be short in writing. Darn that. Lucy Harris, yeah. But to be short in writing, behold... He saw other multitudes pressing forward, and they came. Here comes the mist of darkness. They caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. So, by the way, we are saying, when the mist of darkness show up, hang on to the rod of iron. Keep moving. But it's fascinating 
they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron. Does that feel different from clingy? Elder Bednar gave a beautiful talk on the difference between these two. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm following it. You explained it to us last time as the first one clinging is out here. Yeah. And then the holding on continually is out here. Yeah, say that faith based. It is faith based. Yeah, go ahead. So, so they're gonna they're gonna follow this along, and we know that they, until uh, they press their way forward, they're holding fast. They come forth and they fell down and partook of the fruit. And as we talked about last time, how do you fall down and partake of the fruit? Because I don't think the tree of life has low hanging fruit sitting on the ground, rotting like an apple tree. How do you fall down and partake of the fruit? How do you partake? Say it again. Somebody hands it to you. Somebody's got to give it to you. That makes sense. In other words, and uh, uh, Ted Callister wrote a whole book on this one, falling down. And he's and 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 this is the premise that says they're going to get here to the tree. They're so grateful to be at the tree. They fall at the feet of the tree. Think about all the people that fell at the, the feet of the Savior. They're going to fall at the fruit of the tree, and the fruit is then given to them. And that makes perfect sense to me. Because these are people, like in the Book of Mormon, that I think have kept the law of Moses and everything the Lord asked them to do, but it was an eye always to there would be a Messiah, and there would be an atonement, and we know His name. And these are the ones that I think uh, it makes sense then that in our journey back to reconciliation in the temple, we're going to walk this path. We're going to kneel at his feet as part of the covenant making. And we're going to receive this with gratitude. And then we get to be then admitted into his presence. That's, that's how the, the whole thing finally comes around. Okay, finally. Uh, now he's going to see other multitudes feeling their way, the great spacious building. Many were drowned in the depths of the fountain and were lost. Uh, now, let's kind of finish with this. Again, we're, we're looking at, we have, the, we have the benefit of seeing the tree of life. And we know what Nephi is going to see and everything that's going to be opened up to Nephi. But for Lehi, this dream was about his family. And it came to pass that after my father had spoken all the words which were many, he said unto us, because of these things he saw exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel, he feared lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. And he did exhort them with all the feelings of a tender parent. Wow. I mean, I, you just sense that. All the feelings of a tender parent, that they would hearken to his words, that perhaps the Lord would be merciful unto them and not cast them off. My father did preach unto them, and he preached many things, and he bade them to keep the commandments of God, and he did see speaking. The beautiful thing about temple texts is that it's expan they're expansive in nature. But they also were very, very personal. 
The beautiful thing about the temple is it's expansive in trying to rescue our kindred dead. But it's also our own individual journey. Walking out of the wilderness and out of the world and walking and taking that step-by-step descent to be reconciled back with God. That's why I'm always, as I've walked, as I've escorted my uh, kids through the temple and, and others, and I watch their first experiences in the temple, it's kind of overwhelming. There's so much symbolism here. And, and so I've had, I've had a number of clients where I have just said that I know are getting ready to go back to the temple, and I'll say, let me know when you're going. I'll meet you in the celestial room. We'll have a chat. Because I want them to get a little bit of an idea, and it's simply my ideas. One of the reasons why you can't go to the temple presence and say, explain this to me. Tell me what this means. How come we do this? Because it's meant to be an individual experience. It's meant to be a symbolism that means something specifically to you. And what it means to you may be different from what it means to me. But it's specific to my experience and the things I'm going through in my life. And what it means to me now may be different from what it, the symbolism I get five years from now when I'm going through a different thing in my life. The temple is very much like a prison that way. You catch a little different time of day, light, something like that. That's why I, I love, for instance, the, the stained glass of the, the Mount Timpanogos Temple in Utah. And, and if, as you look at it, at one time of the day, it's bright, it's bright red. The stained glass is all bright red. And then you come another time of day, and it's bright blue. And then it's green. It just depends on when the light is hitting it. Well, the light of, of the, the Savior lighting us through the temple is going to be different based on when we go and where our experiences are and what's going on in our life. And I think that's the way it's meant to be with temple texts. This vision, the tree of life, is so deep and so powerful that even non-Mormon scholars look at it and go, this is ancient. This is very, very, very old, and it matches up with all the other ancient texts that we see with similar uh, symbolism. Um, beautiful that we've been blessed with this. I pray that we can kind of enjoy this for what it is and be, and be taught by it. Okay, by way of the uh, next the rod of iron uh, was given on Jan. And, and then October the following 13th. week, if you want to meet me in Ephesus, 12th, you're welcome excuse me. to do October that. October 12th. But in the following Thanks. two weeks, Bye. then we're going to take a two after that.